Hi, this is Ben Lowell. Merry Christmas and welcome to Back in the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Christmas in the First Testament, with a message entitled Christmas in Deuteronomy. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Because of the brevity of life, our outlook on life changes as we get older. You know, youth is by nature forward-looking, and old age is by nature a reflection on the meaning and purpose of our lives. And that's not to say that these are exclusive categories. You know, young people are quite capable of reflection, and old people are quite capable of being forward-looking. I'm not saying that it's one or the other, but there's a tendency or a bent or an inclination that attends to both the young and the old. And I mention this today because I want to speak about Christmas from the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is the book of Moses, the preacher. He's an old man. And the context of the book is that Israel has now come to the plains of Moab, and they're about to enter into the promised land. And any forward-looking person would be excited, great joy of entering into the promised land and all the adventures that lay ahead. But Moses, because of rash words made earlier, was prevented from entering. He would die on the eastern side of the Jordan, and he wouldn't go in. But he's concerned for the people of God. You see, old people really do have the capacity to look forward and to imagine what's going to occur when the people they love move on and they are left behind. But Moses is also deeply concerned that the lessons of the past should not be forgotten. And so the old man has a sermon to preach, but not just one, but three of them. And the sermons will cover everything from an urgent appeal to to keep the law to a remembrance of the great battles that were fought in the past and how the Lord had guided them, not by their own strength, but by the Lord's strength. And therefore, in the future, Israel must never say that their own hand and their own power have gotten them all the wealth that they now enjoy. You know, Deuteronomy also goes over a number of laws for the second time, seeking to reinforce their importance. And then finally, in the third and last sermon of Moses, he goes into great detail explaining the blessings of keeping the law and the curses that would come should they abandon it. You know, it's an appeal, don't abandon your God, nor his righteousness. And the book ends with Moses putting into place the succession plans after he's gone. Joshua is to be their leader. The land they're going to really is a land flowing with milk and honey. And then Moses ends with a high song of praise to a God who's worthy of praise. And with that, the book ends with the death of Moses. You know, I mentioned when I spoke of Christmas from Leviticus that Leviticus can be a very difficult book to read and study, although I did say that if you do it, it yields very great rewards. But Deuteronomy is not a difficult book to read. Its lessons are impactful and challenging. No book will make you reconsider your disobedience to God like this one. But what does it have to do with Jesus? Well, much in every way. Did you know that Jesus quoted from this book more often than from any other book in the scripture? Let's begin with Luke 4. Now, that's not the story of Jesus' birth, but it's the story of those moments before Jesus began his public ministry. He was about to go from being the obscure carpenter from Nazareth who would lead a ministry that would divide all of human history into two, into B.C. and A.D. You know, before Jesus begins his public ministry, the Holy Spirit has, has driven him into the wilderness where he will be tempted by the devil. We also know that during those 40 days in the wilderness, he will not eat or drink. So what was he doing? Was he in just one continuous prayer? Well, we're going to come back to that. 
But at the outset, we need to see a parallel here between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus. Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, receiving the Ten Commandments and also receiving direct instructions as to how to build the tabernacle and set up the rules for the worship of the one true God. What Moses did those 40 days was to to hear from God as to how to transform that ragtag group of slaves into the people who were holy unto the Lord. 40 days. Well, Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and praying and receiving instructions about the nature of a ministry that would transform the world. 40 days. Well, what did he do? Well, part of the answer is given in the temptation. Luke tells us that the devil came to him and tempted him. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. So use your power for your personal advantage. That's what everyone else would do. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone. That will settle it for Jesus. Again, the devil comes, says Luke, and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'll give you all of this. You know, I have in this series already made mention as to how this temptation was very similar to Moses' temptation as he saw all the wealth of Egypt. All Moses needed to do was bow to the Egyptian gods and goddesses, and the astonishing riches of Egypt would have been his. But Satan, well, he offers Jesus a much sweeter deal than he offered Moses. Bow to me, and I'll give you more than the riches of Egypt. I'll give you the riches and power of every nation on the face of the globe. It's it's quite a temptation. Abandon God's plan and get all that you can from this earth. Fill your coffers with wealth and pleasure and all the power that you can dream of. I have it in my power to give it, says Satan. And again, Jesus responds by going right back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 verse 8, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then on the third occasion, Satan tempted Jesus that he might throw himself down from the very highest spot on the temple, you know, that part of the wall that looks straight down a sheer cliff right down into the Kidron Valley. Throw yourself down and watch as the angels bear you up. If Moses commanded the Red Sea and it stood fast, then you'll have to do something that puts you in his league. Without even a hesitation, again, for the third time, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, every time the temptation came, Jesus did not reason his way through it or try to rationalize a possible outcome based on the decision that he might make, but rather, you know, the answers for him all flowed not just from Scripture, but in this case, from the book of Deuteronomy. And that leads me back to something that neither Matthew or Luke, who records that experience in the wilderness, actually deal with. For those 40 days, what was Jesus doing? What were his activities? Well, in order to answer that, I have to go all the way back to Matthew's Christmas account. If you're like some, you might wonder why the final testament doesn't begin with a great opening story, but rather, for the first 17 verses, it begins with an extensive genealogy. Indeed, Matthew divides the genealogy into three sections. He begins with Abraham and traces Jesus' genealogy all the way to King David. Then second, he starts with David, traces the genealogy all the way through the kings of Judah to the time of the exile into Babylon. And then from the exile, he traces the third section of his genealogy all the way through the the rightful heirs of the kingdom to Jesus himself. 
See, Matthew's making the point that when Jesus was born, he was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. This is the birth of the king. And that's also why Matthew is the only one to mention the visit of the Magi. They came from the east. They're probably the inheritors of the tradition of the magicians from Babylon, dating all the way back to the ancestry of magicians in Babylon at the time of Daniel. Well, at any rate, not to be distracted, you know, they arrive in Jerusalem and they have but one question. Where is he, they say, who was born king of the Jews? And that's fascinating. None of the Jewish people know, but these pagan philosophers are quite convinced. Well, no doubt they've heard this from Daniel and they actually had a scripture from the book of Numbers which told them that the star was an indication that the Messiah was born and that this Messiah was the king of the Jews. Now, of course, this set up a firestorm in Herod's palace. But Matthew, by pointing out these historical events, is making the case that the child in the manger is the rightful heir to David's ancient throne. And that's why when we read all the way through the book of Matthew, and when we come to the disputes that Jesus had with the, you know, with the Jewish religious leaders, you know, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law who are constantly looking to discredit Jesus, I mean, these were the religious teachers. Well, Matthew wants us to see that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, these men were traitors to their nation. How so? Well, the answer is obvious. When they finally succeeded in murdering Jesus and having him nailed on a cross, their treason to their nation was complete. They killed the one who was born king of the Jews, the rightful heir to David's messianic throne. Ah. What has all that got to do with Jesus tempted in the wilderness and his quotes from the book of Deuteronomy? Well, that's our question. What is Jesus doing those 40 days in which he was fasting and praying? And that, I think, is where the story gets very fascinating. As you know, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to sharing the good news every single day through our radio Bible teaching and a wide variety of audio and video resources. Well, buying time for radio teaching on stations from coast to coast is costly. It's a cost we believe is of high value. All of our ministries rely on the generosity of people like you. And this month stands out as critical as we look to close the calendar year end strong for the new year ahead. Our goal for December 31st is to raise $376,000 To support our ministry work, please consider investing in our efforts to help people of all ages and stages to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, some of us, when we think of the First Testament, have this mistaken view that God never wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. So we form that view from 1 Samuel 8. You know, Samuel has been judging Israel and all has been well, but his sons are wicked men. And it seems that the elders of Israel, that that nasty period of the dark ages might come back. They need a king, they say. And in the end, God tells Samuel that the people haven't rejected him, rather they've rejected God. Now it's true that the motivation for wanting a king was wrong. But that's the lesson from 1 Samuel 8. 
It's not that wanting a king was wrong. It's that their motivation was wrong. So how do we know that? Well, because the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 and 15 says, When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. You see, Deuteronomy anticipates the need for the king. And it's this language in Deuteronomy that does set the stage for the messianic expectation. The Messiah is going to be the great king. But in the meantime, Deuteronomy also sets down some of God's laws that are to be followed by each king to come. Listen as that's described in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And that was a preparation for being king. And obviously, in those days, there was no printing press, so, you know, the king couldn't go online and buy a copy of Deuteronomy. But there were scribes, and they could have been commissioned to, you know, draw up a royal copy that was to sit next to the king. But Moses was all too aware that this copy might never be opened. You know, I compare this to what happens in many Christian homes in which, you know, there are Bibles aplenty, but not one of them has ever been read or studied from cover to cover. We profess this high regard for Scripture, but in many cases, we don't even know what's in it. And so to prevent that kind of hypocrisy, Moses set it down that every future king would be required to write out an entire book of Deuteronomy word for word in their own hand. And it's an amazing thing when that happens. I mean, you have to pay attention to each word and each sentence structure and the thoughts behind it. Now, getting back to Jesus in the wilderness for those 40 days, since we know that he was born the king of the Jews, and since we know that Jesus never violated any single word of God, I have to assume that Jesus, knowing his true identity, wrote out his own copy of the book of Deuteronomy. Well, when would he have done that? Well, I think the best answer would have to be that he wrote it out while he was in the wilderness, preparing himself for that three-year ministry that would transform the world. And I have to assume that during the three years of his ministry, that copy of his handwritten book of Deuteronomy never left his side. And that explains why, when the devil tempted him, that Jesus went back to Deuteronomy, which he would probably just have written out. And it also explains why Jesus, while he quoted all the First Testament constantly, he quoted Deuteronomy more than any other book. After all, that's what a king did. And by the way, why do none of the gospel writers mention what I've just suggested? Well, I think the answer is that if the gospel writers had spoken of Jesus' private copy of Deuteronomy written in his own hand, I mean, people would have done everything possible to procure such a copy, and they would have bowed down and worshipped it. But let's get back to the passages from Deuteronomy that Jesus quoted. In Matthew 5, when he speaks of divorce, he's quoting Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Now, it must be said that, you know, he does add to it, but he can because he's the Son of God. Matthew 5, he speaks of turning the other cheek. He's quoting Deuteronomy 19, 31. 
And there he points out how this passage has been wrongly applied or twisted. And so Jesus says, but I say to you, and then gives the true intent of the law. Same thing again when it comes to taking an oath. There he quotes Deuteronomy 23, 21. Jesus often quoted the Ten Commandments, which were found both in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. John 5, 31 to 36, Jesus spoke of the need for three witnesses to make a claim. Well, there he's quoting directly from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. In Matthew 19, Jesus is in a conversation with a rich young ruler. He told the rich young man if he was to enter life, keep the commands. And then he quotes the law from Deuteronomy 5. But he also makes the connection there between hearing the word of God and receiving life. And that's from Deuteronomy 30, verse 20. Well, we could go on and on, but let me give one more illustration. In John 8, well, you'll remember that passage. The Pharisees say that they've caught a woman in sexual immorality, and the law says to stone her. And you remember how Jesus responds. Well, he says, he that is without sin cast the first stone. So why does he respond that way? Well, because of Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. That passage says, on the evidence of two witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So where were the two witnesses? Clearly, Jesus smelled a rat. You see, in actual practice, almost no one ever got stoned for adultery. Well, that's because someone had to be present to witness it. And indeed, two people had to be there to see it. And so in the case of the woman caught in adultery, Jesus was calling for the witnesses. He knew it was a setup. And so he says, the one without sin cast the first stone. You see, they probably set up witnesses in the room, and those people had their own sin. What was this to do with Christmas, however? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy 18:15, And there Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Remember when I began? I said that Deuteronomy is a sermon, or actually three sermons, that Moses gave. I also said that when we get old, we spend a great deal of time looking at the past, asking questions of the impact of past events. Indeed, Deuteronomy does do that. Deuteronomy is an amazing account of what the experience of the giving of the law meant, how God's kindness is really about God's grace to his people. Don't forget the lessons in the past, says Moses. But I also said that Moses was thinking about the future because old men are not precluded from thinking about the future. I had said that Moses was all too aware that after he died, eventually Israel would return to her sinful ways as they had in the past. So listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 31:16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Well, we know from the reading of the First Testament, that's what happened. Well, then, if that's the case, Moses must have died a very depressed man. And I worked so hard to remind God's people of the blessing of serving the Lord. And what did they end up with? Back in idolatry. So it's a horrible loop. They came from an idolatrous nation, Egypt, and then eventually went to the idolatrous nations around them. You know, Peter, I think, described that well in 2 Peter 2, verse 22. He says, what the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. But Moses didn't die in despair. 
he said that the Lord would raise up another prophet like him. Indeed, let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. Remember, God will raise up a prophet like Moses, and they must listen to him. Now verses 16 to 18. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That is, there will come a day when there will arise a prophet like Moses, and he will be the voice of the Lord. He will be as if God were speaking from Mount Horeb or from Mount Sinai. They will hear the words of God coming from him. You know, when John wrote the Gospel of John, he began by telling the story of the birth of Jesus in this fashion. He said, in the beginning was the word. Indeed, this one that Moses thought of, the one that would finally and ultimately end the idolatry among his people, this one was the word of God speaking in a voice as loud as the one that came from Horeb. And that's the story of Christmas. And it's Christmas from Deuteronomy. It comes with the hope of a greater prophet and a king who will speak the words of God. This is our Jesus. This is Christmas. Thanks, John. There's some really interesting stuff here, but maybe you could say a little bit more about this theory about Jesus actually copying the book of Deuteronomy when he was in the desert. And I've got to be honest here, Ben. It's my theory. <laughs> so I don't know how many others, uh, you know, talk about this. However, uh, we do know that, you know, when I quoted from the book itself, that it was required of kings to have a copy of this beside themselves. Uh, is Jesus self-consciously aware that he is the king of the Jews? Absolutely. He's self-consciously aware that he is to sit on David's throne. He is the Messiah. Uh, and so as the great king, the final king, the one who ultimately rules all things, it would seem to me that, that he must have done this. Now, whether or not he did that during the wilderness temptation, I don't know. Um, you know, and it's been asked, you know, I mean, where would he have gotten a copy to, to copy it from? And I would say from the synagogue. But nonetheless, uh, whether or not he did it there or not, it seems to have been on his mind. Uh, he was constantly thinking of it so that, you know, when Satan came to him, that's what he referred to. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us next week as we continue our series, Christmas in the First Testament, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada, wishing you all the joy, hope, and wonder of the season. While the trees go up, lights are hung, and the house smells of delicious baked goods, many of us find ourselves celebrating apart from our families this year. This Christmas season may look and even feel different, but nothing can diminish the message of hope that Christ brings. The coming of Jesus was and is the arrival of ultimate hope in a world that has lost its hope. It's why we can genuinely say Merry Christmas. We're so thankful for our Back to the Bible Canada family. Your partnership makes this ministry possible. 
To support these Bible teaching efforts this month, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.